Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Okay, so my name is Nico Jenkins. I'm a professor of philosophy, uh, the chair of academic studies at a small art college in Maine, in Portland, called Maine College of Art. Uh, I'm also influenced by you, a coach, and um, working with people on bringing them into a more philosophical life. Okay, and we had a we had a brief conversation, um, an event I was doing. Mm-hmm. And there was a Q and A, and we were talking, and and you were talking about um, the education education system, especially yeah. in the United States, and the direction that it's going. What is it that you see as a problem with the education system, the way that it is now? Well, I see so much that's a problem, uh, and I should preface by saying that I didn't really grow up in this country. So, uh, though my parents were American, so I wasn't really where'd you grow up? American. I grew up all around the world. My father was a war journalist, so we lived in Hong Kong and Beirut, Rome, Paris, uh, all about the place. Wow. Um, and uh, he was a war journalist for Newsweek and then the Washington Post. Um, so I wasn't exposed so much to the American education system. Okay. And I did my, I did graduate work here at St. John's College in New Mexico, but I also did my PhD in Switzerland. So I was exposed to a lot of different educational systems. And then I came back to the U.S., I started teaching at a small, what's called a pre-professional college in Bangor, Maine, uh, called Hudson University, which is really teaching nurses, future cops, psychology students, very basic um, technical skills for, for going in, not a liberal arts university, not what we think of as a university. Okay. Um, and so when I started teaching them, I started noticing a lot of gaps, gaps that I would have thought were were just basic, normal education gaps. For instance, I was teaching a, and this is this doesn't this won't sound really critical, and maybe it isn't. But to me, I was I was I was aware of it. Uh, I was teaching an introduction to philosophy course, and part of philosophy involves aesthetics, uh, the theory of beauty. And I put up on the screen a picture of the Mona Lisa, uh-huh. and uh, and I asked how many of the students knew it. And there were 12 students in the class. And um, almost no one had ever seen the image. Really? Let alone knew what it was. One student could name that it was the Mona Lisa. Maybe two students said, oh yeah, I think that's familiar. But the majority of the students had no idea what it was or what it was, you know, that it was considered a great work of art. And how long ago was this? This was 10 years ago. Okay. About 10 years ago. Um, and I realized then, I thought, well, how am I supposed to teach about art if we don't have a common currency, if we don't have a base of understanding? You know, not, not that everyone should know the Mona Lisa, but perhaps they should in order that we can all understand, okay, this is considered a beautiful work of art, and now we can start to critique it and decide whether it's beautiful or not. But, but without having that common currency, it's almost impossible to have sort of a, a cultural connection. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. And um, and again, that's a that's a small amount, but I but I a small concern, but I found more and more that uh, 
there were things, you know, 10 years ago, we had been fighting these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. Several of my students, it being a fairly impoverished university, had brothers or sisters or parents who'd, who'd gone through the war, had fought in Iraq or Afghanistan. But when I put up a picture of the Middle East on the board, and I actually did this, I had <coughs> them took a blank blank sheet of the, a blank map of the Middle East and asked them to fill out what there were. They couldn't name any of the countries. They were putting Germany where Turkey was. They didn't know where Iraq was. They didn't know where Afghanistan was. And this, more than the Mona Lisa example, seems really, on one hand, just really sad that we had been expending trillions of dollars and sending men and women over to fight these wars, and the kids were so divorced from what was going on in the world that they couldn't actually name or point to where their relatives yeah. were fighting and in some case dying. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about this, and I'm thinking, when, how old was I when I learned about the Mona Lisa whenever I was first introduced to that? Um, and then the idea of, I remember in grade school, having these sheets that outlined the countries. And then you'd have like the names of the countries and numbers, and you had yeah. to number what the countries were, right? Uh, and this was all around, all around the world. I mean, it was, it was part of required study. When, yeah. when did that stop? David, I don't really know because I'm not... I don't teach in the, the I teach higher ed. Yeah. I don't teach K through 12. My understanding of No Child Left Behind, which was the sort of the predecessor of what we now know as Common Core, I think it was George Bush that brought in uh, No Child Left Behind and then Obama sort of changed it to, to Common Core. And I think a lot of, a lot of things like that dropped out at that point. Okay. And I think also that coupled with the rise in technology and kids being distracted by devices and these sorts of things that that facts almost became a little bit less important in that sense that they don't need to know. You and I needed to know where these things were because we couldn't otherwise look them up. Okay. If you look up, if you open your computer now, and type in where is Iraq, it shows you a map of Iraq. You don't necessarily need to to know that on one hand. On the other hand, I think you really do need to know. Yeah. I think it's it becomes part of that, again, common currency, that shared language that, that we can... Well, there's no visual association. If you, were, if you say Iraq, if Afghanistan, uh, Germany, Iraq, you can kind of see those in our mind because we know what they look like on a map or where they are. Some of us have been there. But they wouldn't have that. So th are you saying that the idea in getting rid of this education, so to speak, was because it's so accessible now, or is there another reason behind it? Because it seems to me, like what you're, what you're talking about, that common currency, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I can know very little about something, but can communicate with you on a level just by knowing a little bit about what you're talking about and then be able to put the pieces together mm -hmm. as we go through a conversation. And you're, you're, you're talking to students um, that are in higher education and they have no idea what these things are. Yeah. 
this isn't quite answering your question, but but I remember when I first moved to New York in 1988, and there were four basic newspapers in New York. There was the New York Times, the Wall, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and the New York Daily News. Okay. And I used to go and have my breakfast in this diner called B&H Diner down on 2nd Avenue, wonderful place. Um, and you'd sit at a counter, and we'd all talk about the news. And somebody who was more right-wing would be talking about the news from the New York Daily News. Somebody in a suit would be reading the Wall Street Journal. I'd be reading the New York Times. And, but we'd all be able to share basic ideas around the news. Now we live in a society in which I have no idea where you're getting your news from. I have no idea where my students are getting their news from. And again, that, 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 that currency gets, yeah. gets thrown away. So we don't have any shared, shared language, any shared ability to begin to disagree. And I think that's, a, I was taking notes on my, on my way here and thinking about this conversation. And for me, democracy is about people disagreeing people having a certain fact, there's a coffee cup on the table, you're seeing one side of the coffee cup, I'm seeing the other side of the coffee cup, we'll never see the same side of the coffee cup. So we'll never absolutely be able to, to agree. I can say, oh, there's a lipstick smudge on this coffee cup. There isn't, just so you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> Good. But uh, I can say there is, and you can't know that, and we can go back and forth. But if you were, you're talking about a totally different cup, your cup, or... We don't even know what we mean by each, what we mean by cups right. when we're talking about it. Then it's really difficult to have a conversation because you're talking about cups and actually you're talking about the water bottle over there, and it's not it doesn't mean anything to me. And I think that in in when we're reading news uh, and a set of facts is coming from so far outside where I understand it to be. And equally, what I'm reading may be so far outside of what someone else is reading that we can't ever begin to have a dialogue. And democracy is all about dialogue. Dialogue meaning words between two people, dialogos, being this, this conversation between two people. And right. that's what democracy is all about. And, and I think it's a really scary time in our country for democracy. I agree. And I think education has a lot to do with that, with this idea that we can't even sit down and talk. You know, there, there are ideas that, that you and I disagree with. I listen to your podcast. There's some things that, that, sure. that I don't agree with, and I'm sure there's stuff that I, that I have that, that you wouldn't agree with. And that's fine. We can sit down over a cup of coffee or, or over a beer and be able to, we're two human beings, and we can talk. But this is very rare in this environment, to be able to have these kinds of conversations. I've heard many people say, Try to try to explain, ask questions, come to terms with why is it that we're so divided and we see things so vastly different. And I've wondered this myself to just an incredible degree. It's it's on my mind pretty much constantly um, at this point because I find it so disturbing. And it seems like it just came out of nowhere. It was like we were doing okay. We had our problems. We knew what those problems were. And all of a sudden... There was such a division, like two separate groups of people going into their individual corners and taking a position where they're right and everybody else is, it, it, it's, it's more than wrong, right? It's not that, that I disagree with you. It's that you're a bad person or a bad group of people because of what you believe. 
and, and I've listened to people discuss this and ask the question, like, where did common sense go? Um, how is it that people can be so far apart on understanding things that have been common issues in our country and around the world for a long period of time and yet have such a divisive temperament about this? Like, where is that actually coming from? But I don't think I was aware that the educational system had changed to the degree that you're telling me about. I mean, I didn't know. I, I would never, it would never dream to me that somebody that's in college wouldn't know what the Mona Lisa was mm -hmm. or wouldn't be able to point to different countries in the Middle East or not know where Germany is. Um, and that just brings up a ton of questions for me in the moment. But I, I guess the, the number one question in my mind right now is, we used to have people that were professionals, I guess, educated individuals, professors, people of higher learning that looked at the curriculums of what was being taught and made decisions based on what do we need to be teaching children, what do we need to be teaching in higher education, I guess to accomplish certain things in life. One would be able to be self-sufficient, obviously, or what your career is going to be, but also so that we could interact with our fellow human beings. And I'm feeling like you're telling me that that's going away. That that, and I'm hearing that there, that there are people in higher education that are, have a vastly different idea that has nothing to do with democracy. Um, it's literally being taught to people as, as the way things should be. Is that my off correct? Where I'm not sure I follow you towards the end, but, but let me talk about what you were, what you started out addressing. Um, I think there is, again, because I didn't really, I come from a fairly privileged elite background, having grown up overseas, family of writers, Pulitzer Prize winners, these sorts of things. I'm, I wasn't exposed to, and this college that I was teaching at in northern Maine was 50% of the students, 50 to 60% of the students were first education, first generation students. That is, they were the first people to ever go to college um, in their families. They come from deeply economically compromised, aka poor backgrounds, um, and had never really traveled out of the state. Had never traveled. You know, many of them had never actually traveled to Boston, which is you know four hours away. Uh -huh. um, let alone traveled out of the country. Uh, in fact, in one of my philosophy classes, I they were talking about wanting to have more freedom, but and I asked how many had passports, and none of them did. So I went down to the passport office and I. And I got the passport forms and I had them all fill them out so that as part of the class, you, if you want to take off, you can leave. You can, you can go travel for sure. a few months and um, got them all with passports. That was their extra credit. <laughs> uh, but I do think that where did this, where did this breakup happen? Yeah. I don't think it's a conspiracy to, to try to to impoverish, uh, impoverish students or the citizenry. Although I do think that you've got 20 years of, of Common Core and No Child Left Behind and very few people who are educated in how a democracy or a civil debate or discussion goes. And I think that makes it much easier for those in power to stay in power. I mean, it's not, it's not that somebody is up there trying to plan this out. 
but it's much more convenient. You know, uh, over 75% of our Congress are millionaires. These are people who are extremely wealthy, have had very little struggle probably in their lives, and they are deciding laws and ideas for the rest of the population. And the rest of the population doesn't really vote, right? We have 50% of the people who sure. are involved in voting. Um, my students, it's far less. I remember uh, Angus King, the senator from Maine, came to my class. And, uh, and one of the students asked him a question. This was before he was senator. It was between he had been governor and then, and then was elected senator. One of the students asked him, said, you know, why don't you do stuff, more stuff about student debt? And King looked at him. And he said in a way that I've, that I've never seen a politician answer it. He said, you people don't vote. He said, 18 to 24-year-olds, they vote at around 12 to 20% of the population come out and vote. He said, older people, the 165 to 85, they're voting at around 85%. That's why we talk about Social Security. That's why we talk about retirement. We're not talking about, about it because we work for the people who vote. And he said, he said I'll challenge you, young man. Go out and get your students to vote. Get, get to 50, 60, 70% of college-age students to vote. And we'll, that's all we'll talk about is student debt. That's all we'll be addressing. And I thought that was so, so honest in a very huh. direct way. Yeah. But students are disengaged. They're alienated from the process. Even in the last very contentious, the, the Trump-Biden election, you know, I probably got half of my students out to vote and I was actually walking them down to the polling places and I was explaining and I was talking in my classes about, you know, this matters. I said, I don't care who you vote for. Vote for Trump or vote for Biden. Yeah. I don't care. I said, I want you to be engaged and I want you to be voting. And, you know, we're going to write essays around the ethics of voting. We're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to walk you down to the polling place. I had people come in to get them registered and still only 50% in my Why? class. Why? They're totally cynical. They don't believe that anything's going to change. They believe that the problems are too big, are too over the top, and they're not going to they're not going to engage, I think. And, I mean, that's a really depressing place. I wish I could say, because it doesn't... Are those things that they've told you, though? Yeah. That that's what they've communicated yeah. Yeah. to you? Yeah, I'm teaching about <coughs> climate change this semester. And the students are so depressed with good reason about climate change. They're, but they're, it's almost impossible to get them to engage in it. I'm lecturing the whole time because I can't get them discussing because they just say, well, why bother? Nobody cares. Nobody's doing anything. And we see that nobody's really doing anything right. about climate change. We that's, you know, I, I'm showing them news articles and it's showing very clearly that you know, the Biden administration hasn't done anything. Certainly the Trump administration did worse than nothing. And we, we continue to, and very clear science says if we don't act in the next, I think it's nine years now, this report came out three years ago, it said if we don't act in the next 12 years to, to bring our emissions down to zero, we're going to off, go off an edge. Um, and, we, and our emissions have continued to rise. And so it's very difficult to, to convince students when they see that in the headlines to, to give a shit. Do they have any idea or opinion on how, th how anything changes? If you want to make a change, a civil change, a, go a governmental change, uh, 
a societal change, a world change? Do they have any idea on how things change or how things have changed historically with things that have changed? Mm -hmm. From my personal experience, no. I would say they don't. And I've spent a lot of time in my climate. In fact, my students did organize a protest, um, a climate change protest during the the recent COP26 in Scotland. And uh, they managed to get out out a bunch of students. I was traveling at the time, so I couldn't join them. But they managed to get out around 40 students from the school to go for a march. This is a school of around 500. So so less than 10%. They managed to get them out to march three blocks to put up some signs, these sorts of things. The next week they tried it again, and they only had three students. Um, And I've talked, I, I did a whole section on protest and how protest has been integral to American change, whether we're talking about the suffragettes and women getting the right to vote, whether we're talking about civil rights, whether we're talking about gay rights, nothing has happened in this country without, nothing has happened in the world without protest. Protest right. is necessary. It doesn't, and I'm, and I'm, I talk to them, I say it doesn't happen through elections. Elections are one thing, but it has to come out. You have to come out. The Vietnam War ended when students came out on the streets and started really protesting. Civil rights changed, these sorts of things. Yeah. So the history of protest is really important, but a lot of them don't understand that. And they don't and when presented with it, I haven't gotten them to absorb it in a sense that they feel empowered by it. Okay. <clears throat> so what changed between the college students of the 60s and the late 60s in particular and the college students today, those students really seemed to care. Like we saw massive attempts to change. We saw civil rights. We saw women's rights. We saw Vietnam. Um, and deeply impassioned people uh, uh, that, that had all different kinds of ideas uh, about the world. What changed between then and now? Well, so much, obviously. But I think, I mean, and I'm, I'm very surprised having come from a fairly, well, pretty radical background to, to, to think that I think one of the major changes that happened is that we've privatized the army. In the 60s and 70s, everyone went into the draft, went in and did 18 months, yeah. 24 months, whatever it was, and maybe they went to Vietnam, maybe they went to Germany, maybe they went to Korea, um, but they were all thrown into, and this is my imagination, of course, they were all thrown into a boot camp. And so you had uh, people from the inner city of New York, you had people from Kansas, you had people from Maine, people from North Carolina, all thrown in and spending the next year working together. So blacks and whites, Hispanics, Jews, everybody sure. in, this, in this place. And everyone traveled because they went off to, you know, some Camp Lejeune or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. um, And they went to these places and then they went back to their lives. But they maybe maintained friendships with people in in parts of the country. When that disappeared, I guess it was under Carter when the draft disappeared and national service disappeared. It didn't happen all at once, but you happen this change where now I teach students, many of whom have never left Maine, don't know anyone outside of Maine, haven't felt and are fed a media that sort of talks about how dangerous the rest of the world is, whether it's terrorists or, or, or you know, people in, in cities and stuff like that. So they don't travel, they don't expose themselves at all to anything. I think that's a major change 
in, in, a, <clears throat> but does in that the makeup of yeah. how people see the world. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, but does that explain how interested college students were in protesting and changing things in the late 60s? Because in my mind, that just didn't pop up when they found out that they were going to get drafted at some point, and we weren't drafting women. Um, something had to be fed into their psychology, into their belief system for a period of time for them to come out and have that much interest versus whatever it is that they're being exposed to or not exposed to now mm -hmm. is not creating mm -hmm. that interest. I mean, you could, you could very well argue that a lot of things didn't change from 1900 to, to after World War II. I mean, there were changes, but there were also not changes. They were fighting for civil rights, women's rights. Those mm -hmm. things had not changed yet, yeah. right? What is the difference in the lack of interest versus, six, say, 1968? Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is exactly, the lack of interest, I don't know how to answer that, but I do know that something that comes up with my students a lot is the fear of being arrested. And that sounds minor, but they don't ever want to go to protest. I mean, I teach in an art school with a lot of really radical students. Okay. And I asked how many went to a Black Lives Matter protest two summers ago. Two raised their hands and actually went. And I said, well, why didn't the rest of you go on? Oh, I was afraid of being arrested, and it would impact my student loans. It would impact um, me getting a job later on. And I don't know how true that is, because I'm not young and getting arrested. I know I was arrested in a demonstration when I was in school when I was 18. Uh, we were accused of rioting. It was a yeah. thousand people. We were all arrested, and you know, it was scary. And and the DA ended up throwing out all the charges um, except for you know blocking the street, a misdemeanor, $50 fine. And it was, it was part, of, part of growing up in a certain sense. Right. So many people were arrested yeah. during those times of protest. And now I think when you, I don't know what happens when you get arrested now, but I know my students are very afraid. Oh, it will affect my financial aid. College has become so expensive that everyone's so reliant on financial aid. Uh -huh. That wasn't a thought for me when I was arrested either because it wouldn't impact my student aid or I didn't have that much and college wasn't that expensive. So I think th when we talk about what's changed in students' mind, and that is sort of a post 9-11 where everything is, everything is watched, everything is surveyed, that, um, that somehow that's crept into the 20-year-old mindset. This is the first generation post 9-11. That's true. <clears throat> I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. There, de there definitely seems to be, um, uh, I don't know if I would go as far as to say paranoia, but, but maybe that is an accurate term, about what the government knows about you. I mean, there was a lot of overreach that happened after yeah, that. Yeah. I never took into consideration that somehow or another that may have filtered down into the children mm -hmm. that were coming up during that time. Uh, my children were coming up during that time. Um, so so let me ask you this. So I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. Um, what do they see as their futures? The kids that you're working with now, what are their hopes and dreams? Do they have them? Do they, are, they, are they 
consciously trying to plan for a future? What is their mindset around that? They're hoping for jobs. They're hoping to work. Okay. Um, but my first degree, I went to art school, so I feel very comfortable teaching, teaching young artists. And I went to art school in order to make art. I didn't care about a job. I worked as a bartender. I worked construction. Um, I did all sorts of all sorts of nasty kind of work that that you know, uh, bartender, busboy, yeah, all these different jobs. Um, and it didn't really matter as long as I got a little bit of money. Rent wasn't that expensive. Tuition wasn't that expensive, and I could make art. And that to me was was the reason I was going to art school, and it's the reason all of my friends were going to art school. Okay. The students now seem very focused with career and with having, making money and producing work that will then sell. They have their Etsy accounts, their, um, their Instagram accounts, their YouTube channels, that, that they're trying to create a market for their work. They're not as interested in exploring life, which I think is what creativity is really about, is, is starting a... I was just talking about this uh, yesterday in class or two days ago. And um, I was saying so many of you know what your artwork's going to look like before you start it. So this is really interesting to me because you you figure out what uh, in ceramics, you figure out what your cup is going to look like before you've made it. We're back to cups. Philosophers talk <laughs> about cups all the time. Okay. Uh, you're, you've figured out you don't have any exploration as to I'm going to take this clay and I'm going to mold it and play with it and some sort of muse, something from out there is going to come through me. And this is you know, classic Greek thought. It will come through me and, and be expressed in this clay. Something new will appear okay. that I didn't know. Uh and so I think they're very focused on, on pure production and pure creation uh, rather than experimentation and, and investigation. Uh, what do they want out of life? Um, I'm hesitant to speak for them, but I don't get a sense of great purpose out of them. That's what I had a feeling. Yeah. And... Yeah, I was sort of a revolutionary in school and I wanted to change the world. Like what I wanted was to get out there and you know, really, you know, mess things up and, and change it and, and reimagine a world, reimagine what it can be. And this is what I teach them in my philosophy classes. I say there's, there's a quote by, um, by Rilke. I wrote it down here. Uh, there's a quote from the, the German poet Rilke. For there is no place that does not see you you must change your life. And that's actually the, and I'm thinking about that a lot because I'm writing a book that uses that as a title, You Must Change Your Life. Thinking about the radical action, the, the action that says this world is not enough. This world isn't, it isn't finished. It's not good enough. There may be parts of it that are wonderful. There, there, there are things that, about it that are, but there's so much more. There can be so much more justice, so much more, so much more joy, so much more beauty, so much more imagination. And so it's not enough. So change, change it. Work to change it. And that, I feel I talk about that in my classes a lot, but that doesn't necessarily, I don't, I think the students are hearing it for the first time. Oh, I can change this world. I can actually do something here. I can actually do something about it. I can actually 
you know, create a different world. Yeah. <clears throat> but I remember being taught that in school mm-hmm. as I was, as I was growing up. I mean, granted, I, I quit high school when I was 17 years old, but prior to that, um, I remember teachers talking to us about change. Uh, I remember learning about what we were going through as a society. I was very young at the time because I was born in the mid sixties, but in the early seventies, I remember hearing, I mean, they talked to us at the, at the age level that was appropriate, but they still taught us about what was happening and how we interacted with that as a country and what our rights were and how we, how a democracy worked and, and what we did. And we had, um, uh, there was, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like our parents, what did our parents teach us that was different than the parents today are teaching the children? And I'm wondering if, is it that the bureaucracy not just in this country, but around the world has gotten so bad that people have developed a belief that it just can't change. And that that is filtering down through our education system, uh, through parents into children's minds at a young age, and kind of squashing their, their inner desire to have a purpose to really go out and see why am I here? I mean, asking those questions, why am I here? Yeah. You know, what is the reason for me be even being here? Um, what can I do? What have other people done? What is the history of people's belief around that religion, non-religion, uh, the history of, you know, the world, the Greeks, the Romans, like all of that stuff seemed to be very intriguing to kids that were my age. We were learning about that. And then, it gave you a hope. It, it, it made you inquisitive. Mm-hmm. You wanted to learn more. You were going down different trails, looking, looking for things, you know, yeah. it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it was scary. Um, but when I hear, and I'm, I'm also working on some stuff around the idea that I have this idea that uh, one of the biggest problems that we have globally is that we have no purpose. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's a, like a world that's lost its purpose. Mm-hmm. And, the human, the, from a spiritual perspective, but I even think, I even think from an evolutionary perspective, there's a purpose in life, and life follows that purpose. It expands, it evolves based on whatever that purpose is, whatever life form it is. But even from a spiritual perspective, the idea is that there's a higher purpose. It seems no matter how far back in history you go, you can see people following that higher purpose, right or wrong, mm-hmm. right? Because we've had both extremes mm-hmm. throughout history. Mm-hmm. And today, what's fascinating to me is it doesn't seem like younger people are looking for that higher purpose. They're glomming on to problematic issues and making those things their purpose. Mm-hmm. Um which I think, I think that, how do I want to frame this? Um, our, our intelligence then corrupts that because it's not supposed to be the purpose. It's supposed to be something that we work on, something to make our, our home better, our world better, our communities better. But it's not supposed to be the single focus of any one person or any one group of individuals. And because purpose is something that is lifelong. The idea 
in my mind is I think, I, and it may be a subconscious fear, if we get rid of the problems, they don't have a purpose. So they keep exacerbating problems because it's almost like they can't, it's, some of these problems seem to me so easy to solve, like no difficulty whatsoever, but there seems to be almost an expressed effort not to solve them, mm-hmm. to just double down on making them worse and worse and worse. And they keep digging down rabbit holes, looking to make them worse and finding other problems that can't be solved and then blaming people for those problems where there's no, and it's not like they're looking for a solution. They're looking to make somebody wrong. Yeah. So you said so much there, and I'm really interested in... Sorry. In, no, 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 no. I think it's fantastic. I think that, I mean, first off, I think you said, we started out saying what changed in the education yeah. system, this this whole interview we started out with. And you described being a 17-year-old or before you dropped out and, and, and these teachers taking the time. My understanding of Common Core and No Child Left Behind is that they're on such a strict curriculum and they're teaching to a test. They get tested all the time that there's very little space for a teacher to kind of take the time to talk about changing your life. It's about feeding you, a 15-year-old student, X amount of information, which in six weeks you're going to have to pass a test, and the school will be graded on the test and whether or not the students successfully pass the test. There's very little room for self-expression in teaching. There's very little room for the genius professor... And the positive side is there's probably very little room for the really bad professor that we all had. We all had a bad teacher who just, you know, clocked in and clocked out and didn't sure. really teach us stuff. But we also had those great teachers who just, like, got us imagining about a different world and the different world is possible. And that, I think there's been a norming or a leveling that maybe in some school districts has been really great and some dis- school districts it's been probably terrible. But there hasn't been a lot of, there hasn't been a chance for the great teachers to express themselves. Yeah. Um, and then I'm trying to think about what, that was your f- the first That was the part. first yeah. thing, yeah. yeah. And then I was, t- I was talking about um, the, the seemingly lack of, of purpose, of, yeah. of, of life purpose. I think things have become so easy that we have these great big problems, the crisis of democracy, the crisis of capitalism, these sorts of things which are, which are huge problems. Uh, crisis of democracy. Uh, but we also have our day-to-day problems are so easy. We're all really well-fed. We all have endless amounts of entertainment on our devices. We're all constantly, you know, we can access TikTok or Instagram or whatever, whatever is in fashion and just sort of scroll through it. I think we're all really bored. There's no struggle. There's no struggle. People are really bored. There's no... There's no quest for life as a result. And as a result, people are more and more like drones sleepwalking through life. There was a great film, and I've wanted to watch it, but I, it was a Vim Vendors film called Until the End of the World. And it came out in the 1988 or 1989. Amazing soundtrack. Uh, and in it, the basic premise was there was a satellite, a nuclear satellite that was going to crash into the into the planet, no one could stop it, and it was going to end the world. And end the world. Okay. But somebody developed a um, a device that could record your dreams, and it was a small handheld device, little black device that you held in your hand. And people became so addicted to recording their dreams that they would go to sleep, they'd record them. 
then they'd spend eight or nine hours walking around looking at their device, replaying their dreams. Really? And it was this cyclical loop. And what, people, what year was this, this movie? I think this was 88 or 89. Okay. Um, spectacular film, I think. Uh, um, who's calling it up, maybe? Uh, Do you want to uh, see if you could pull that up, T? Uh, until the End of the World? Yeah, yeah sure, I'll pull it up. Yeah, okay. I think it's Vin Vendors. Um, so, yeah, we're all so comfortable that we're all sleepwalking. And obviously that's not happening in parts of the world, you know, Yemen is in a terrible time. North, Northern Ethiopia is in a civil war for the last year. Yeah. Climate crises are happening. Syria for the last 10 years. Yeah, there it uh, is. Yeah. 1991. 91, okay. And we had no, I mean, I th the, the little, what I remember from it is this little handheld device because everyone started just watching it. And I think of that when I, you know, I was in the airport yesterday yeah. just watching everybody staring into these devices. And they're, this is another thing. I come into my classrooms. Ten years ago, I used to come into my classroom and I'd have to say, okay, okay, everyone, let's settle down, pay attention, like I'm going to speak now. I'd have to get their attention because it would be so loud and chaotic. Now I walk into a classroom and it's dead silent. Is that right? Totally silent. Everyone down, head down, staring at their devices. There's no social connection there. Obviously, there's social media. They're connecting with friends somewhere or watching someone's feed of some sort. They're not connecting to the person next to you, next to you, which is also really, really horrifying, right? Sure. Um, imagine basic uh, in in uh, in in the army and stuff like that. They take away your phone. I don't know. I don't know. In boot camp, boot camp. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, well, when I was in the army, there were, there were no cell phones. Yeah, <laughs> you had to get uh, uh, as many quarters as you could as you could get, and then. On your off time, you stood in line at a payphone, yeah. right? There'd be six or eight payphones down in a bay, and you've got uh, uh, two platoons down there. Everybody's calling home their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what they do. And that's a good question yeah. if they take but it that, away. But that social activity, standing in line, you were talking, you're standing between a couple of friends or maybe strangers, and you were talking probably about your girlfriend or your, yeah. or your back home. <clears throat> and there was a, whole thing happening while you were standing in line to get to that. Yeah, we used to actually, it was big back then, we used to play hacky sack, uh -huh. right? So it'd be four yeah. or five guys standing yeah. around and, you know, you're talking, you're yeah. playing, you're talking about what you did that day and yeah. joking and yeah. you're developing relationship. Yeah. You, and like you said earlier, all of these guys that you're with are from all different parts of the country, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. So you're hearing about where they came from, what their childhood was like, what they did, what they didn't do, their accents, mm -hmm you know, making fun of each other, yeah. you know, it, that's fascinating. That's what I always loved about smoking. I used to smoke a pack or two a day, you know, yeah. until my, until I was 30 or so, but, um, having, asking for a cigarette or asking for a light, you know, you'd talk to a total stranger and ask for a light. Now right. we don't do that because we don't smoke. So we don't engage with a perfect stranger on the street. Another just, interaction you know, down. Yeah. And all of these, but I think these, I and mean, we started, we're, we're trying to figure out what's, what's changed in the last 20 years. And I said so much has changed, but it's these little slippages away from connection, away from relation with other people. We don't, we don't have the draft. We don't have boot camp. We don't share cigarettes. We don't, you know, and now, I mean, I really worry about where we are now. We don't go to the movies anymore. We right. don't go out. We don't ride public transport. We don't 
see any, we're, you know, the last 18 months, my daughter is 12 years old. One sixth of her life has been in lockdown, Yes, has been separated. And she, she enjoys wearing a mask now. She doesn't want people to see her smiling. Oh, don't want God. to see, you know, and that's, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, there's, there's an aspect of being a young, a young girl becoming a woman and you know, that the, the expectation that they have to smile and look good for, for people. I, I understand that, but it's also terrifying that, you know, we're more comfortable without, without showing our faces. Uh, and that's, that's, so I feel like there's all this stuff. We're becoming more and more alienated. Oh, that just, I just got a creepy fast fucking feeling <laughs> when you said that, that, I mean, yeah. there's so much, uh, in the interaction of the human face. I mean, we know that scientifically that this, the self image, our self esteem. I, yeah. To, and, and to think that, that people would become more comfortable wearing a mask. I mean, it's bad enough what phones have done and social media to warp kids' sense of their own image mm-hmm. uh, and, and work on perfecting it to some thing that's, that's just literally sickening um, or the bullying that has taken place over the years mm-hmm. and the amount of suicides that have taken place uh, because of the bullying on, on social media. It makes me wonder, what are the children of today what problems are they going to have because of this that we can't even imagine that are coming as, as they become adults yeah. and we go into our, our older years? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm seeing that sort of on the front lines because my first-year students, the freshmen coming in, I keep saying, and the school has had, and I'm hearing that schools around the country are having a lot of problems with socialization with these freshmen, and it's because they spent the last two years in their mother's basement, you know, looking at a screen. They didn't socialize. They didn't go to prom. They didn't have, you know, they didn't play their sports. They didn't date. They didn't, you know, all of these things. They were all socially isolated. Their, their interactions were all through social media. Have you been hearing what the problems are like that they're having in socializing? I have heard that a lot of schools are having trouble. Well, I, I know that students are not reading a lot. They don't feel they don't feel connected enough to, to read to, to read a text or follow an article through. There's a lot of absenteeism. There's a lot of I know that a lot of people have dropped out or or are not returning to school after after winter break or or spring break or these sorts of things. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's an epidemic of of you know everyone dropping out, but yeah. I do think that we're starting to see these signs of of non-socialization becoming even more profound. That's really interesting. And I think it's, 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 it's horrifying. I mean, I think uh, for, for everything, for being able to, we are social creatures. It's what defines us as human beings. You know, we're defined as homo sapiens beings who think, but we're also homo socius. We're, we are, we've gathered around the fire, we've told stories, we've, we've engaged for 200,000 years since language sort of made its first, and even prior, probably before language. Right. We came together around a fire, we came together around a, a piece of meat or, or a glass of, or a drink of water. And, if, and that's all changing. 
And what does that, what does that leave the, the human being, what it means to be a human being? Yeah, because is that going to lead to loss of empathy and compassion and understanding? Um, the, the ability, I mean, how about just the skill of listening to somebody else, being able to sit across and just listen to another person and understand them uh, to some degree? I mean, th- that's, that is like the horror stuff of old science fiction movies mm-hmm. are made out of because I cannot imagine how horrific it would be that we will treat each other mm-hmm. if we lose those things. I mean, we see what happens whenever we engage with any kind of people that, that don't have those, 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 um, those common emotions and understandings established as it is. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult, and the way that they treat their own people is terrible. And, and of course, we've seen it throughout history um, through different dictators and such. There was a French philosopher... Lithuanian, I think, Lithuanian French, Emmanuel Levinas, who was a, a Jewish philosopher, worked, fought in the resistance. I think he was, he was imprisoned for a time during World War II, but he said um, he was very interested in the face of the other. Okay. And he said that if you see the face of the other, you can't kill, the other. You can't kill them. And so if we, if we can see each other, if we can recognize each other, yeah. you know, I can't, I can't kill you. I could kill you if you're an abstract force. Oh, this guy down in North Carolina, and he's you know a bad guy, and like we have to go, we have to go wage war against him. Right. But as soon as I know your name, David Nagel, as soon as I know your eyes, the color of your eyes, the the way you nod your head, the the way you stand, I can't. I'm I'm powerless to kill you. Is what is what Levinas was saying. Well, and I think every time we objectify others, and I think we're in this way of turning everyone into an unknown other or an unknowable other, then we're able to do whatever we want to them. Yeah. And that is terrifying. I mean, that is just incredibly terrifying. I know when I, when I was in the army, one of the things that was very fascinating, I'll, I'll just tell you a, a short little story. Um, when I went into the army in 1986, I was not aware of just how bad the Cold War was in other parts of the world. Things that were happening. Pardon me? Where did you serve? Uh, Germany. Germany, okay. Germany. So I was an MP, and as I'm going through uh, basic training, one of the things that uh, I started to become aware of was that they literally teach you to dehumanize the enemy Mm -hmm. because you can't kill somebody that's yeah. your brother, yeah. right? So they give them names, right? Um, make up these horrible ideas about these individuals. And they would literally test us. They would do psychological tests. They would, they would have us go in and mock kill these dummies. And then they would give you a lie detector test. And they were seeing who would pass the lie detector test wow. and who wouldn't pass the lie detector yeah. test. So they were looking for, they were, I'm not at liberty to say what they were looking for, mm-hmm. but they were looking for something at, at that point in time, uh, specific individuals. Anyway, another thing that they were teaching us was about terrorism. 
and which I had known nothing. I knew nothing about terrorism at that age. Uh, and a terrorist group called the Red Army Fraction, mm-hmm. and I didn't know anything about them. Edermanhof. Yeah, I know about them well. Yeah, yeah. So I, the the day, the 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 morning that we fly into Rhine Main Air Base, I'm notified that because what because my I was a uh, military police with a nuclear qualification. I was to could be guarding nuclear bases mm-hmm. there. And we get there. And at three o'clock in the morning, uh, Red Army Fraction had, there was a, there was a, I guess they, well, one of the things that they had told us were there were black sites that you were not allowed to go to. So this would be bars, clubs, restaurants, and stuff that were known terrorist hangouts that you were not allowed to visit. So there would be lists, you know, frequently updated. This is places you can go. This is places that you can't go as a, as a person in the military and your family mm-hmm. can't go either. So apparently... Uh, there was a guy in the Air Force who went to one of these places and met a woman in a bar. This woman's going to take him home and sleep with him. She gets him in a car, and she's a terrorist, and she kills him in the car. Mm. They take his uniform, uh, all of his uh, credentials, put it on a male terrorist that looks similar, put that guy in another car that has a bomb under it and they drive it on the Rhine main air base and park it in front of the embassy. And it was supposed to go off at nine in the morning when there was this big, huge meeting, all these generals and <clears throat> different officials that were going to be there. And, but it malfunctioned. It went off at three in the morning and it just did terrible destruction. Didn't kill anybody, but it blew out all kinds of windows and everything. Anyway, the base was shut down when I got there. So they shipped us off someplace else to do, to do something else. And there was this, there was this incident, um, uh, in Berlin where they told you when you were guarding, when you were at like the checkpoint, Charlie, you could not do anything for anybody until they got to the other side of the gate. Cause people would come, yep. they would have different credentials that were allowed to go back and forth, but there were families that constantly tried to get across the wall. Mm-hmm. And then they said, the people are killed all the time. Mm-hmm. And I had no, no idea just how real this was until I saw a family shot down in the streets. Mm. And everything changed for me in that moment. And I was thinking to myself, and I'll never forget this, I was thinking to myself, why don't we know about this in the United States? And I came home and I was asking people, do you know about this? Mm-hmm. Do you know that this is happening and people were like, get out of here. You're full of shit, right? You're yep. making up some, and I wasn't making up a story. Um, these things were happening and they were happening on a regular basis. Nobody knew. I call, I remember calling like a couple of days later, calling home and talking to my girlfriend and be like, did you hear about a bomb that went off at, at, at Rhine Main Air Base on the military side? They're like, no, here, mm-hmm. nothing. Never heard anything. Yep. And I found out there were so many things happening that nobody ever knew about that were, that were taking place. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing about it was that it, it shaped so much of what I saw. And I kind of grew up in that moment to, Mm -hmm. to a certain degree. It, It matured me a lot because I became aware that the world was not quite the nice place that I thought that it was. It wasn't that I didn't learn about 
you know, Hitler and the Nazis and Stalin and all that in school, but it's not real to you mm-hmm. in a book. Mm-hmm. You know, you just hear about these these stories and you're like, wow, so glad we don't live in those times anymore, yeah. right? And yet you're, you, you find out that there's horrifying things that are happening all over the world and that we're playing, we're playing this, this game with a trigger that could annihilate everybody instantly um, if somebody either has an accident, which there were so many close calls mm-hmm. at that time, or you've got a madman on the other side of the, uh, of, of the switch. It, one of the things that, that I find interesting, and today very much so, is there have to be people higher up that see the destruction happening of humanity Mm -hmm. and nobody seems to be doing anything about it or even caring. And I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would understand it if we were all being run by regimes or China or, or something, but even with Biden, I mean, like he's an American, he's been here. He knows this. Like I just, there's something I'm not grasping and I'm afraid it's my own immaturity and ignorance. Mm -hmm where I'm just not wanting to see the truth. And the truth is, is that the people that are in power don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think there's a huge grabbing happening, grabbing of resources. Yeah. And um, there was an article in the guardian a couple of weeks ago. That was about, they said the right, the right is starting to understand climate change and you, and you may not be happy about it because what's happening is a understanding of an admission that climate change is happening, that resources are becoming scarce. And as a result, we need to build more walls. We need to separate more people. We need to create more, more separation. We That's what's being isolate. said. That's what's being said on the, and I'm talking about the far right wing, okay. the, the white supremacists and stuff oh, like that. They're okay. saying like, you know, which maybe if you're on the right wing, you don't want to. But you know, this this far group are saying we need to, you know, defend our country more because scarcity is coming. So we need more guns, we need more walls, we need more protection. Um, but with a wealthy class, I think it is just a a, a grabbing together of 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 scarce resources, and not admitting to the fact that that there's that there's great suffering both happening now and happening in the future. One of the things with climate change is I used to teach it even just 10 years ago as this is something that's going to happen to your, to your grandchildren or your grandchildren's children, your great grandchildren. And, you know, we can, if we get together now, we can change that history. Now that narrative's changed. It's happening right now. Climate change is happening. It's happening to people. We have 65 million refugees in the world today, 65, 65 million. million. And the majority of those are climate change refugees already, leaving, leaving places that have become more too hot or, or, or desertification. Uh, you know, the Syria civil war started is, is kind of thought to be the first climate change war. It happened after three years of a drought. We, we tend to hear about it in America as, oh, these people wanted freedom and then you know the, the government didn't let them have freedom and then there was a civil war. The freedom they wanted was the freedom to buy bread. And the government had taken away the subsidies on wheat 
And so bread prices had shot up. So people were really hungry. They were coming out on the street. They were demanding bread. The government acted against them. It created a civil war. But that was the direct result of scarcity of wheat in, in Syria, um, which is you know where civilization starts, right? That's right. like where wheat was first planted. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are all of these massive problems happening. And there is a movement to hide our head in the sands, to buy the new iPhone 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever it is, um, to buy the new Nintendo, these sorts of things, and just to like focus on 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 not being connected. Like as long as we're distracted, if we're distracted, we're not connected. And as long as we're distracted, we're not thinking about we're not thinking about scary things. We're not scared thinking, and if we're not thinking about scary things, we're not thinking about solutions either. Right. We're not thinking about empathy. We're not thinking about how we can connect to people, how we can help someone. You know, it takes. I was talking to my daughter the other day. She wanted to start it. She was asking me about a, a um, what sort of a charity she could start at her school. And okay. I was telling her about this campaign. It's a wonderful organization based in San Francisco called CamPed CamFed, Campaign for Female Education, and. Um, they educate girls primarily in West Africa. They give them, uh, they give them food and housing. They pay their tuition. They give them uniforms and shoes and books. All of it costs around three hundred and fifty dollars a year to educate a girl, one single girl, to get them through school. Three hundred and fifty dollars a year. It's a tiny amount of money. It's less. It's literally less than a dollar a day. Yeah. And it's the best route towards ending ending poverty, because when you ed, end when you educate a girl who becomes a woman, women tend to pool their money. They tend to be resourceful with the money. Men throughout the world, when they get paid, they spend it on alcohol and prostitutes, generally. Is that women, right? Yeah. Women tend to save the money. They pool the resources. They'll, they'll all pool the money in the village so that they can get a water filtration system or something like that. This is just how it works. So you educate girls who become educated women, and then pov- it's the best route to ending the cycle of poverty. Um, and so only $350 can educate someone. Yeah. We could all do it. We should all sure. do it. And if everyone in the United States said, okay, I'm up for a dollar a day, less than a dollar a day, we would, you know, educate what? 360 million, 400 million girls in West Africa. It's amazing. The change that we can do for very little yes. amount of yes. amount of effort it's no sacrifice. A dollar a day is no is right. There's nobody in the in the United States today who can't afford a dollar a day. Right. And some people would argue with me about that. Some of my students would argue, but I guarantee you that, that I agree with you. That that's the case. So the changes can come, but we have to stop being distracted and have to start being connected again. Yeah. And even if there were people that couldn't do it, there's more than enough that could. Yeah. To make an enormous difference to solve. Jeff These Bezos problems. can take care of those who... Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Um, and, I mean, wealthy people that I know have no problem with contributing in ways that are close to their heart and, and mm-hmm. make a difference. I, um, I'm very close with Operation Underground that mm-hmm. is rescuing children from sex slavery yep. around the world. I was, I was driving in my car I don't remember where I was going and I was listening to a book and I heard the author talking about this problem 
And I was just like somebody slapped me in the face. I had no idea that this was the fastest growing criminal organization in the world and just how many kids are sold into sex slavery every year. Yeah. I was shocked. And I, I started to cry in the car. And I thought to myself, I cannot know this mm-hmm. and not do anything. Because yeah. if I don't do anything, I'm part of the problem knowing what I know. Mm-hmm. And here's another thing. You can't know this and not see a picture of your own child mm-hmm. in your mind, right? Yeah. And then I, when I started to investigate it, I found out that un, unlike CAMFED, it is actually quite expensive to put these operations together mm-hmm. to rescue these children. It starts at about $12,000 and it goes up from yeah. there. And of course they have to, they have to work with governments and the, the inner security of governments and all this stuff to be able to do this, but they're doing an amazing job with it. And it's one of those things that when you, when you start to learn about it and you start to get educated about it, they tell you up front, this is a problem that we can extinguish from the face of the earth. We can solve this problem so that it doesn't happen. Um, and then the thing that like I knew, but I didn't know was that the largest the largest producer and consumer of child pornography is the United States. Even though they're, they're getting children from all over the world and they're importing and exporting children from our country as far as the pornography end of it goes, because there is this question like what's causing this, Mm -hmm. right? And I have, I mean, I could sit here with a completely different podcast and tell you what my theories are about what's causing this because I've done a tremendous amount of thought behind it. And I know a lot about, um, uh, human psychology. So there's a, there's a lot of things, but you cannot argue, uh, the, the introduction and the ease at which human beings have the ability to see and witness and participate in stuff like child pornography that is so unhealthy and damaging to the mind. Uh, because of technology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, when we were kids, it was your dad's Playboy or something mm-hmm. that you, you came across. Not anything like... The, the images that kids have the ability to see today, whether it's pornography or, or anything else that, that is horrific, is astounding at the ages that they're being exposed at it, along with the ideas of guilt and shame about our own bodies about our self-identity, about our sexuality, about the confusion that is taking place in, in sexual identity today. Um, it's, it's no wonder that we're having issues that are, that are getting this big. And I wonder, and I'm very curious about this, you, you, made, a, you made a comment about people at the top being wealthy, kind of grabbing uh, at what's theirs or limited resources or, or, or what they want. But these are also people that very eloquently can get on the news and talk about the problems today, like global warming mm-hmm. and uh, climate change and the, and the cause and effect of it and how we have so many years for this, you know, before this turns into a, a, an unwinnable situation. Do they not consider the annihilation of ourselves through... Um, the deterioration of 
humanity, the way that it's happening with the things that we've been discussing, are they not seeing that to the point of this is in 20 years, we're going to create such a problem in humanity that we might, we might go extinct Mm -hmm. as a, as a species, right? Do they not see this? I think there's a blind reliance on technology and thinking that technology is just going to pull us out of it. And can you say more about that? I think we've just ex- we've spent 200 years in America, especially everything gets better every generation, or at least the last 50 or 60 years, uh-huh. things are better. I mean, I I was talking to my mother once about about phones, and she has what my wife calls adult day ADD, um, which is you know she's so distracted by her phone, she's always on it. She's you know telling me Instagram is broken and Facebook is broken, and for me to fix it, she's <laughs> 80 something years old and you know very socially socially active on sure. social media. But she also remembers the first phone that was put in in her small town and the party line that she had as a child that, you know, you picked it up and yes. you could hear other people speaking. And so the entire history of the telephone has been lived by her. It's pretty incredible to go from this, this party line all the way to the iPhone 12, right? And this, 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 this incredible amount, this, this amazing invention that has allowed us to connect and talk and also to become distracted and, and yeah. uh, so it's things. So we've become reliant on the idea that, you know, everything's getting better. Cars are getting better. Cars are much better than they were 10 years ago, than they were 40 years ago. All of this constant idea that things are going to get better. Maybe medical care is better. I'm not sure entirely, but, um, uh, it, we have this reliance on technology. And there are people who believe that that climate change, well, we're going to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. We're going to create these machines that suck carbon right. out of the atmosphere. I've heard that. And we've already, we have a couple of those in operation. The reality is to scale them up is almost impossible. Uh, From a financial, is it finan- finances or? Financial and the amount that would ni- need to be built. The okay. ones that have been built now are, are you know, they're, they're large machines but they're only sucking out a small amount. I think we'd need, you know, a million or more around the country doing it and just to scale up to, to be able to be, begin sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. The idea that we'll spray aerosol into the, into the atmosphere that will reflect the sunlight back. This is a possibility. It technically could work, but it would sh- probably shut down the monsoon in India, leading to, you know, a billion people losing their losing access right to what's the cost everything yeah, has what's a the cost. cost yeah and also that our skies would be perpetually white we'd never see a blue sky again um wow. uh there but you know people say well we're going to refine this it will get better these sorts of things i think there is an unrealistic reliance because every every problem has had a solution so far we're still here uh-huh. you mentioned you know the the Nuclear arms race. I mean, ultimately, that came down to two rational actors who weren't always rational, but they were rational enough that they never pushed the button. Right? Yes. Reagan and and um, Brezhnev or Gorbachev yeah. never never actually did it. The thing about climate change is there's no rational actors. There's you know, we're sitting here drinking water from plastic plastic bottles. This is the closest to immortality will ever come because these bottles will exist for 900 years on yeah. the planet. And only 10% of what's actually put in the recycling actually gets recycled. So, but I could drink, or you could drink water bottles for the rest of your life and throw them in a room here 
and you they'd fill up maybe half the room or the whole room. Yeah. It wouldn't really matter. But when it's a million or a billion people doing that every day, all of a sudden the problem becomes that much larger. So individually, we're not doing anything. Every time I turn on my car, I'm not really causing climate change. But if, if a billion people are doing that, then 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 I then we are contributing to right. it. So there's no single rational actor. There's no one person. I'm furious at Jeff Bezos for going to outer space. I think it'd be fun, but let alone the problems around the world, just the problems in, in the United States. I think of what that space flight, how many of my students would be taken out of debt and able to start a life without sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars of debt. Yeah. For, for just so he could go to space for 15 minutes, I'm furious at him. I mean, on one hand, I think it's great. Wow, space tourism, it's fantastic. On the other hand, there's so many problems. Right. Why do that? Why not say, I'm going to take that, and I have no idea how much he put into it, billions. Oh, and huge amount. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy health, I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to end, end child slavery or make a, con, a significant dent in it. So it's ego. You think that's it's, what it is with Bezos? It's, it's ego? Can he, be the, can he be the first or one of the first? Yeah, I suppose so. But, it, but it's also ignorance. I mean, I think, I mean, he must know these problems. He has really smart people around him. Uh-huh. But it, I don't think it's, I mean, there's certainly ego as part of it. But it's also just understanding, like, you can do so much for human beings. Yeah. And people need so much. And maybe when, when you're very, very rich and you're out, you're just out of out to lunch all the time. You're not engaged with with people's problems. So so let me take a step back for a second. Okay. As you said, you're furious with Bezos. I'm thinking about when Kennedy challenged the United States to put a man on the moon in ten years. And I remember growing up, I mean, I saw it, I was only three, but learned about it later. There was this idea of taking, at least this is the way that I perceived it, and I know that a lot of people perceived it this way. Kennedy, attempting to be a visionary, which I think he was, looking at the United States, excuse me, even people around the world, going, if we can accomplish this, imagine how it's going to open the mind of people, right? to show what we can actually do for, for some kind of force of good. You know, I mean, we had World War II, we had Korea, we were Vietnam. Um, and I think that it did. I think it became a huge inspiration for so many things out of the fact that we accomplished this thing, right? And now, where is, because I don't see Bezos as an inspiration. It does not come across to me. Was, Excited by him, yeah. No, I I don't hear the conversations happening about it. Um, uh, I don't hear people. I don't. I don't hear people saying, "Wow, look at how look at that!" Like that wasn't even possible a few years ago. What else could we accomplish by doing this? And then looking at the real challenges that we have and putting something behind it. I've come to the conclusion and. And I hope it's not a jaded one. I'm not looking at it from a jaded perspective. I'm looking at it as a way to figure out how can I be part of the solution and not the problem. 
so many of the problems that we have are solvable. We have the technology. Like we could mm-hmm. do, we could do what Bezos did. Mm-hmm. Right? We have the technology to do these things. We have the technology to change the lives of these women in Africa. We have the, the technology, the, the advancements in science that do incredible things. It appears to me, with all these problems that we know about, Nobody actually wants to fix them, and I find that extremely disturbing, mm-hmm. and I don't understand why that is. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, and I don't. I, I also am baffled as to why. I mean, I think I mean, what you said is when you said Kennedy wants to put a man on the moon, um, putting a man on the moon, it could have been any man. Yes, and I don't know. You know, who was it? Who was it? John Glenn, was he the first one to walk? Or who, who walked on the moon? For? Uh, Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. Yeah. So I don't know Neil Armstrong's background, but I suspect he was probably, you know, working class, went into the military, became an astronaut, these sorts of things. He wasn't anyone special. He wasn't anyone particularly yeah, rich. Nobody knew who he was before. Jeff that. Bezos says, I'm going to put myself, using all of my enormous privilege and resources, into space. No one's excited about that. Of course you can, because you're the richest man in the world. You can do anything. Right. And that's what you're going to do? You can go to, and you didn't really go to space for that long. It was right. like 15 minutes. Okay. Right. Like, so what? And, um, and you're right. It's incredibly uninspiring that he did that. And there's so much more inspiring things he could do. I mean, Bill Gates gets close to this, right? He's like, I'm going to end malaria. I'm going to like focus on ending malaria. And malaria is a disease that nobody really talks about because it's a bunch of, because it doesn't affect white people, it doesn't affect right. Europe and North America. It's it's in Africa, it's in South America. So he took something that most people didn't even think about and said, I'm going to solve it. Yeah. It's not, it should be far more inspiring. We should actually look to Bill Gates, and I have a lot of problems with Bill Gates, but we should actually look to him as, and say, okay, here's a visionary. Here's somebody who's living with their billions of dollars and doing some good. He hasn't given up very much. He's yeah. given up what? Half of a hundred billion dollars, fifty billion dollars. Okay, he still has fifty. He's he's sure. just fine. Jeff Bezos could do the same. All of these guys could do the same. I'm a big believer in taxes. I know that, and that's an argument that I, I never win in this country. <laughs> but um, I'm a believer in taxes. Yeah, I totally yeah, believe in taxes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think taxes are what fixes. You know, this whole infrastructure bill. Everyone was going on. Well, how are we going to pay for it? Well, if we started doing real taxes. And on people like Bezos who could afford, you know, 1% or 2% of their income, you could actually fund it. You could, you could provide free education in this country. You could provide free health care for the people who can't afford it, who can't afford to go to school, who can't afford health care, who are working uh, low-paying jobs and exactly. working two or three of them. We could actually make their lives decent. Yes. And Jeff Bezos wouldn't even notice because he'd lose 1% or 2% a year. The very rich. And and that's how this country did become so great. That's how this country was great. Yeah. Up until now, you know, everyone is always chasing lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. It's why 50% of our bridges in this country are failing. Right. Because we can't afford to. Right. Like, you only have to fly from a place like uh, Mumbai or Dubai or any of these supposedly third world countries to fly from there into JFK and you see how poor our country Absolutely. has become. JFK is falling apart. Yep. It's a nasty airport that has had no improvements. Mumbai, I would spend half my life in the Mumbai airport because it's so beautiful yeah. and airy and clean. Yep. 
I, I completely yeah. agree with you. Like, it's like we have ghettos in this country because we want to have them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's because we yeah. tolerate them. Yeah. Nobody, yeah. There, there seems to be no incentive to fix these problems and they're completely fixable. We should have the most amazing education mm-hmm. uh, with the most advanced thinkers and, and scientists and people um, coming together, debating things. Like it could be so much better. And I guess I'm just... And I, this, I, that's where I wonder, that's why I said, what happened to the purpose on this planet? Um, and I'm starting, I'm starting to get a, a little bit of a different picture based on what you're telling me, with, especially with the idea of, of technology and how that's advanced and made things so easy. And there is no real striving for things anymore. Everything seems to be, well, I mean, if there really isn't. I mean, if you live... If you live in uh, in the United States, you you live in most of Europe. It's life is easy. Mm-hmm. It's not difficult. Yeah. Um, there really is not a, a huge threat that you're going to be broke tomorrow. So, I th- I think with your idea that if this is multiple problems, multiple things slipping away that all add to um, the building up of a human human being. The the, the working on forcing us to think, having to think Mm -hmm. through issues to help each other, understanding, um, you know, and and that's another thing, like you were talking about, like the army and people not coming together. It used to be people in neighborhoods came together and helped each other out. If you had a problem, you know, somebody died in a family, everybody cooked for that family, somebody washed the clothes, somebody took care of the kids while they were grieving. there was a there was a collective I've got your back to some degree mm-hmm. for quite a bit of, yep. of period of time, and that seems to definitely have gone out the window. And when we saw COVID, we saw people turning each other in. You know, mm-hmm. oh, this person went to the store, or this person did this, yep. or they didn't have a mask on, and they're calling the police mm-hmm. on their neighbors instead of having each other's back. Yep. So, but, not universally. I shopped for my neighbors. Yeah, uh, yeah, know, I agree. Like we went out on the block and stuff like that. But but yes, I I completely agree that that it, COVID only separated people further and made people more intolerant. So getting back to the beginning, because we're running out of time here. What in your mind? What needs to change in our education system to get it back on track? Have you thought about that? I've thought about it a lot. Um, one of the th- programs that I'm working on is called Living Philosophy Now, which is Sort of, I'm kind of tying it into, I'm new in in coaching, but I feel as though this, uh, I feel like taking philosophy out of the classroom, it was born out of the classroom. It was born in Greece, in the marketplace, Socrates, Plato, these were people walking around talking to people. And I think in conversation and in uh, in communication, that's really where philosophy needs to go. It has to come, it's been killed by the university and it needs to come out. And in a sense, almost all education, uh, I mean, you're, you know, to sound, um, to sound overly complimentary, you're one of the smartest people I know. I, I listened to your podcast. You dropped out of school at 17. You've found the wisdom outside of, outside of the university. Now, that's not going to be for everybody. But I do think that we need to bring back the ability to get lost in the education system, to get lost in wonder, to get lost in an exploration and something that doesn't have a practical economic purpose. Education now is so much about 
well, you need these skills in order to succeed in the marketplace. Are things like debate even respected anymore? Again, I don't really know because I because that's not my field. I don't think so. Although I had a friend whose kid was going to Stuyvesant in New York, which is one of the best public schools in the country, and he was part of a debate team. But I think, I mean, one of... We didn't get to it, but and I know we're running out of time, but but I see education sort of separating now. Yeah. There's always going to be Harvard and Stanford and, and Yale and these fine schools, which will have humanities and have debate club and have philosophy classes and literature classes and these sorts of things. What I see in in the future, though, is that more and more, as education becomes more and more expensive, fewer and fewer will go to school or they'll go to trade schools of two years, get associate's degrees, these sorts of things, get rid of all of the things that we've been talking about that make us human uh-huh. and trade that for just technical skills. How do you how do you get a job and how do you go and do these things? Uh, and I think that's a, that's a real tragedy. Yes. Uh, so I think we need more creativity in schools. It, as much as we focus on critical thinking, which is usually problem solving, we need creative thinking. We need to think maybe outside of the box to use sort of a tried uh, a tried expression uh, but we need to to let kids imagine and and like I said get lost in 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 thinking and in dialogue and in and in and in activities that don't have a meaningful a meaningful outcome you know I say to my I used to say when I was teaching at the at the other university to the cops especially or to the future cops and to the nurses, I'd say, you don't need my philosophy class. Like You can go and be a nurse. And you don't need philosophy to be a nurse. You, right. you need to know certain diagnostic skills and these sorts of things. I said, but to be a great nurse, to be a great human being, you need philosophy. You need these things. I said, yeah. as a cop, you know, as a cop, you're always going to be meeting people on the worst day of their lives. No matter what they've done, no matter how horrible they may be, this is the worst day of this person's life sure. is being apprehended by a cop. And you can treat that person as, you know, a nasty, bad criminal and bang their head against the roof. Or you can say, wow, here's a guy who's just had made so many spectacular mistakes. He's going away to jail for the rest of his life. I'm going to treat him with dignity, love, yeah, even love, dignity, yeah. love. And that's what philosophy can do. And there's no... The, the police system doesn't need empathy and love and dignity to do their job. But society does. Society needs those police officers doing yeah. that. Society needs to be able to, yeah, we need, we need police officers who aren't afraid to love and aren't, aware, aren't afraid to, to have philosophy, to question what's right and wrong. What's, what is right and wrong? What does right. that mean? But on, on some scale, though, we have to stop demonizing the idea of thinking differently. Mm-hmm. Because we've demonized it. Yeah. I mean, from what I can tell, yeah. it is it is not a good thing to be thinking differently. I talk to a lot of people, professionals, doctors, attorneys, psychiatrists, that will tell me things privately um, about what they think is happening out there, and for their life, won't say it publicly because they're scared to death that they'll be canceled. In I'm scared world. to death of this podcast. It's just <laughs> it's, I mean, in the back of my head, I am thinking about that. Oh, of I, things that I've said, and I'm like, oh, I wonder how that'll, yeah, how that will play when they take a 30 second clip and show it to my dean and say, look what he said. 
Yes. You know, and uh, yeah. So. Yep. Which they have to build. I think too. council culture is really frightening. I mean, it's it's it is um, it's a, it reminds me of the Cultural Revolution in China when students, young people, were equipped to go out and Im- and inform on their neighbors, on their parents, on their teachers, and people became so afraid to say anything. And there are things that I'm afraid to say in the classroom now that I wasn't afraid to say ten years or five years right. ago, because I am I am cautious and and how I refer to somebody, how I how I discuss a problem. I am I am much more cautious, which means that it's working, because now I'm not free to teach how my exactly brilliant or successful mind allows me to teach. I'm stopping myself, and what that that means that that I'm not teaching authentically. And I'm not, and yeah, I'm I'm self censoring, so I don't get, so that I still have a job and healthcare and can sure. take care of my family, and that's a really frightening place to be. Very, very. And it's happening on the left and the right. Yeah, there's so, no question yeah. about it. No question about it. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Okay. Um, let's do this again. Yeah, like, absolutely. I'd, yeah, yeah, I could. There's so many places I would love to go. Just, just a little short on time today, but thank you so much. I mean, thank it, you it for was, having me. Oh, this you're welcome. Exciting. Anytime. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. All right. Yeah. Thank you, David. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.